Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist and the magical mystery tour called Life, Matthew DBI's. Tonight's guest is hockey author Jim Janak. Jim hails from British Columbia, Canada, and is a former amateur hockey coach. Tonight, we'll be discussing his newly released first book, Path to the Summit, Anatoly Tarasov and the History of Soviet Hockey, Hockey Part 1, 1946 to 1956, a masterful history of the origins of Soviet hockey. Jim, welcome to the show. It's an honor and privilege to have you here. I'd like to start off by asking you, what led you to write about Russian hockey? Well, it's been something that I've been interested in, you know, pretty much all my life. Um, when I was a kid, I had the opportunity to go to game four of the 1972 Summit Series between the Soviets and Canada um, when I was playing in Vancouver. And over the course of, of the 70s and into the 80s, I was always frustrated that the Russians seemed to be doing so well at, at training and developing hockey players. Their national teams were beating ours. And in 1987, I had the chance to work my way down to the Coliseum when the Vancouver Canucks had invited the great, the great Russian coach Tarasov to Vancouver. And I managed to get into the building and introduce myself to him. And I ended up being his guest for the week that he spent with the Canucks. And then when he came back a couple months later for a hip operation, I was able to interview him over about four or five days. And so I had this, this connection with him and I wanted to sit down and one day and write about that. And as I struggled to put everything together, I decided to do a complete history on Soviet hockey. So that's how that got going. Where was Anatoly Tarasov born and where was he raised? Where was he born and raised? Well, he was born in Moscow. He was born in December of 1910 and he was raised in Moscow. And, you know, his 1910 to you know, pre-war was a rough time for the Soviet Union. They were just shifting into communism. And uh, basically, there was opportunities in sport, and that's where he got his beginnings. How did Tatarsov become involved in hockey? Well, he was. his intention was to become a soccer coach. Mm. Um, when he, he went to university to learn how to be a coach, the, the focus was on... Uh, bandy, which is uh, um, what the Russians call their version of hockey, and soccer. And his primary focus was soccer. But after the war, when the Soviet Union decided to re-enter the international community, uh, there was a decision to take up a bunch of sports. One of them was going to be Canadian hockey. And the opportunities to establish yourself in hockey were greater than soccer. And he started off coaching both, but made the decision to drift towards solely hockey. Now, you state that your book debunks the myth that the meteoric rise of Soviet hockey was due solely to Tarasov and his innovative methods. Okay, what led to that myth being created in the first place? I mean, was it part of Russian propaganda or did Tarasov create his own myth? Can you exp explain and expand on that, Jim? combination of both really um, the Tarasov really didn't become the major um, uh, fo 
focus and 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 sort of the central figure in Soviet hockey until after 1956. Before that, between 1946 and 1956, there were a number of players, and he was a major part of that. But the story that we've always been told in the West is that they started playing hockey in 1946. He created the way they trained. He created their development system, and he was the guy in charge of it all, and he wasn't. And so my book explores what was really happening and how he gets to the point where he starts to become the central figure in, in Soviet hockey. The myth itself and, and why it's been perpetuated so much in the West has a lot to do with the fact that the Soviet Union was a closed society. And because of, of the way things were, he was pretty much the only one who wrote books that were published in English in the West in the 1960s. Mm. And so after the 72 series, that's pretty much the only thing people had to go by were the books that he had written and the interviews that had been done with him in the mid to late 60s and into the 70s as coach of the Soviet national team. So he played a big role in formulating that impression, but there was limited information and it, it's almost like it was a story that got going and built its own steam. Okay, who were those key Russian figures during those early years from 46 to 56, you know, who were basically working alongside Tarasov? Can you name some names, please? Well, you, you, you had you know, some of the most important people that were building the Soviet hockey system was a guy by the name of Nikolai Romanov, who was head of the Central Sports Committee. He was a big hockey fan, and were it not for him, Hockey may not have been even pursued as a sport. The story of how he fought the, the political gamesmanship that was going on to try and kill off hockey in its first couple of years, uh, it certainly hasn't been told in the West and played a big, big role in the evolution of hockey. You had Vasily Stalin, who was the son of, of Joseph Stalin, who was um, the head of one of the sports societies. Uh, he played. He was a big hockey fan, and he played a big role in establishing not only his club, but but a lot of the facilities that were built for hockey. You had Adakai Chernyshev, who was a coach of one of the other teams and Tarasov's main rival. Chernyshev had a very different view of the way hockey should be played, a very defensive way, and he and Tarasov conflicted constantly in those first 10 years. In fact, Tarasov's biggest frustration was that even though they won in 54 the world championships and then won the gold medal in 56, he was highly critical of the way the team was playing. And he didn't like Chernyshev's defensive system. He thought it was going to doom them to failure over the years and that they were very lucky to have won in both 56 and 54. And so there was this big battle that went on in the first 10 years. And so it wasn't exclusively Anatoly Tarasov. There were a lot of other players. And there were a lot of Machiavellian machinations that went on um, for Tarasov to eventually take over in 1958. Was Tarasov a political ideologue as well as being a coach? I mean, did he see hockey as an extension of Russian communist ideology? Or was he just a pure sports coach? You know, it's, it's 
in a way, it's a combination of the two. He was, he was a brilliant sports coach, and he was a sports coach first and foremost. But he understood the system within which he had to operate. And to get ahead in that system, you had to um, be the public face of it. And he would use those elements of it that would help him get ahead. And privately, he was against some of the other elements. Um, he got in trouble quite a few times for being indulging in what we're, we would what were called capitalistic practices. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's he knew how to play the system pretty much, and, and it's no different in the West. You have to know how to work the system to get ahead, be it to, up to the NHL or or in other levels of hockey. And he worked the system to get ahead within the Soviet Union. He he within the framework of their system. There were party ideologues that had to promote the values of communism, and he would assume those roles because that's how you got ahead. Okay. Now, your book discusses the enormous impact Lloyd Percival had in the rise of Soviet hockey. Please tell our, tell our listeners, who, who was Lloyd Percival? Who was he? Well, he's pretty much been forgotten about these days. I mean, he was... Uh, you know, if you go back to the 1940s, he was very, very popular in Canada, uh, and he was well known in the in the United States. He was um, one of the earliest sports scientists. He was one of the first to take a very heavy scientific approach to sports and sports training. Um, he had studied throughout the 1930s as the concept of sports sciences was coming out. His main love was track and field. Um, but he also loved hockey, and he tried to bring um, uh, an overall physical fitness approach, and he became a physical fitness expert, and he was using that avenue to, to improve all sports for all Canadians. And um, he was... He, he, there were a lot of, um, I'm trying to think of their names, and they escaped me at the moment, but he was he was actually courted by a number of universities in the United States to come and, and instruct and teach there, and he wanted to make Canada his home. So he was, he pursued pretty much everything you can imagine about sports and fitness. Okay. So what were Percival's methods with regards to hockey? Was it, you know, as you were saying, you know, emphasis on physical fitness or were there other as access, uh, other aspects to his method? Well, the main thing was Percival. When he started, he graduated, I think it was 1929. And that's when he started his path towards learning about sports and sports science. And one is, there were, there were two idols in his life. One of them was a guy by the name of Mercer Beasley, Who's very very famous in early American tennis, and the other was Newt Rockne, mm. the famous uh, football coach from Notre Dame. Mm. He actually went down to Notre Dame in 1930 and studied at Newt Rockne's coaching clinic that he used to hold. And he idolized Newt Rockne. He thought Newt Rockne was one of the smartest, most creative, innovative coaches that existed in sports. And 
Rockney was famous for back in 1913. The forward pass in American football had, had come into the game in 1906, but nobody was really using it. And what what established Rockney's reputation was he and a guy by the name of Gus Doras utilized the forward pass in ways that hadn't been done before. A very famous game between Army and Notre Dame in 1913. Yep. And then he took those concepts with him as he became coach, and he applied conditioning and nutrition and innovative tactics around the forward pass and built himself into a legend. And as Percival studied all of this from him, Percival realized there was a similar opportunity existing in hockey. Mm -hmm. Before 1930, hockey was not was a game that outlawed the forward pass. You weren't allowed to pass the buck forward. Just like football, you weren't allowed to pass the ball forward before 1906. Yeah. And when we changed the rules in 1931, and we started to allow forward passing, and then we changed the rules again in 1943, and we created a center red line and allowed passing over the blue line, we created a new game. And Percival, by, 19, by the 1940s, was a very famous personality in Canada. He had a national radio show, and he was writing all these books, and one of the books he wrote about was hockey. He tried to create these manuals for hockey that, that extolled the best features of all the aspects aspects of the game that coaches could use and he keyed in on the fact that you know there's there's this nobody's really taking advantage of the forward pass there are better ways to play um and you know he outlined philosophies for for pattern passing for puck possession for changing lanes for 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 keeping all your players in motion which ran contrary to the accepted tactical wisdom of the time. And a lot of people thought it was pretty innovative stuff. He covered all, all, all elements of hockey, but he focused on that and he wrote two really important books, How to Train for Hockey and How to Play Better Hockey. And he put those out in 1944 and 1945. Mm. There were people who thought the books were brilliant. Um, um, Lester Patrick of the New York Rangers raved Tarasov gain access to his personal theories? Was he you know, getting those books and, and absorbing them? Or did he travel to Canada and seek out Percival? Or did Percival ever travel to the Soviet Union? Well, initially, so the Soviet Union in the 1930s was, was um, establishing themselves as a communist country, as, as trying to get ahead in sports. They established a um, a university to train sports coaches in 1934, 
And at the same time, they established what was called the Central Research Department that was going to span out across the globe and gather all the best in sports information. Um, in 1937, they established a hockey department in that university, and the Central Research Department in the early 40s was pulling the best information from the West and gaining a lot of attention in the newspapers in 44 and 45 were these two books that, that Percival had written. And Tarasov, who was, a, who was one of the first students that went through to learn hockey at the Institute, he took that first course they had on hockey in 1937. Um, one of his instructors, Miguel Tolborowski, gave him that book. And he went and got a translator, had it translated, and he studied it. Um, like, he took it apart. It was a 50-page book. And one of the key elements that he saw in that book was that a lot of the concepts that, that talked about puck possession and pattern passing and uh, keeping the players in motion all the time were a lot of a, were similar to a revolution that was going on in soccer at the time. Mm. And being a soccer coach, he keyed in on all of that. Mm. And he thought that Percival was brilliant and that within these elements, Percival promoted that this may be the best way to play hockey. And he keyed in on that. The, the, the Soviets would, would reach out to Percival in 1948 at the London Olympics, mm. knowing who he was. These were the first Olympics the Soviets went to. They didn't compete, but they sent observers. And Percival was approached at the Summer Olympics by, by um, uh, a gentleman by the name Gleb Balkanlov, who was the head of the sports section of Central Red Army, and another gentleman by the name of Sergei Savin. And from that point, that, that first introduction, they established a, a letter-writing correspondence that carried on for a number of years afterwards. During the or during the fifties, when the Soviet the Soviet team was beginning to beginning to compete and all that, like the fifty four and fifty six teams, especially the fifty six team that won gold, who were the early key players for the Soviets? Who were the early stars? Well, the biggest star was Vesvolod Bobrov. Um, Bobrov was was an amazing athlete. He was a, a star of their soccer team. He was a star of their hockey team. He was a bandy star. He had immense athletic ability, and he actually was a member of the club that Tarasov coached and played on. In fact, Bolbrook, uh, Evgeny Babich, and Anatoly Tarasov were um, aligned together that just dominated the Soviet Hockey League, and Bolbrook was the main star. He was, he was a scoring machine, and um, he, was, he was the number one player at the time but he had a very different view of hockey than Tarasov did and in those early years they fought viciously amongst themselves for the way hockey should be played you know Bolero's skill was heads and tails above everybody else on the ice and he basically you know you go in the corners get the puck get it to me and I'll do the rest and Tarasov at the time was trying to build this total hockey system and sort of had a fight with the central star 
who wanted to play the Canadian way. Wow. Tell me about their offensive and defensive tactics. Was it mostly, were they using size or was it mostly speed and finesse? Can you describe it? You know, uh, uh, give a thumbnail sketch for our listeners. It was, it was speed and finesse and conditioning. Um, and, and certainly with, with Central Red Army, Tarasov was trying to implement a lot of Percival's theories about pattern passing and, and being in motion and keeping the puck and puck possession. Um, there was a concept called total soccer, and he was trying to bring it to life in hockey and call it total hockey. Um, so it was largely a game of, of passing, of learning you know, passing patterns and confusing the opposition with, with approaches that they weren't familiar with and using their speed and conditioning to push that pattern passing, you know, above the ability that the other teams could play. Uh, certainly in the early years, the key element was the conditioning. Tarasov um, was a big fan of Lloyd Percival's, and there was a soccer coach also that, that Tarasov idolized at home, Boris Arkedyev. Um, both of them believed in conditioning and using conditioning to elevate the pace of play above your your opponent's team. And Tarasov brought that to 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 hockey. You know, it, it was interesting when when a, a team from the Soviet Union went to England in 1945. Um, the biggest, I mean, they 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 just amazed. I always like to ask this question whenever I interview an author. When you were growing up, who were your favorite authors? And of those favorite authors, did any of them light the spark inside of you to become a writer or perhaps influence your personal writing style? Well, when I was a little kid, my favorite my favorite books and favorite authors were, were Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Ronald <laughs> and and um Charlotte's Web by E.B. White. And I was also a huge Hardy Boys fan, so I love Frank Dixon's books. Uh, I, was, I was pretty much a voracious reader as a child, but I think when it came to hockey, the, the books that influenced me the most were written by Kent Dryden. You know, he, he came out with a book in 1973 called Face Off at the Summit, and then in, in 1980, there was The Game, which I thought was an amazing book. And I love the way Dryden would tell stories, but they were, they were all 
without you realizing it, interwoven to come together in a way at the end. Um, and that had a tremendous influence on me. You know, this, this book that I've written covers a bunch of different concepts and tries to weave them together. And uh, if there's anyone that had an influence on that style, it would be Kendry. Now, this book, your book, Path to the Summit, is first of a trilogy. Is that correct, Jim? And uh, when will part two come out and what time period will part two cover? So part one is out now. Um, part two, I'm working on as we speak. Uh, I'm hoping for November of later this year. The time period it'll cover, it'll cover from 57 right up until just after the 1972 Olympics, uh, which, which was the end of Tarasov's um, time on the team. And then the third book will cover um, the 1972 Summit Series, mostly from the, the Soviet viewpoint, from the Russian side of the story. Jim, please tell our listeners, is this book available in stores? And where can readers find this book? Uh, Amazon. If anybody wants to just search either my name or Path to the Summit on Amazon, and you can get it through there. Is it conventionally published or is it self-published, Jim? It's self-published. Um, uh, I, I wasn't really too sure if I could get a publisher to do it, but the key the key thing for me was Amazon has this 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 self-publishing program now that just it makes it it's very attractive to anybody who wants to put a book out. So I opted to go that route. Uh, I've done the same myself, Jim. I mean, my last three books I self-published using uh, Amazon's KDP as well. You know. So we're both we're bo we both share the same club. <laughs> well, it's 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 remarkable if if you know your listeners out there have never explored that. Um, it's it's a fascinating avenue for authors who want to get a book out there, and I highly recommend. Um, it, it goes by the acronym of KDP, as you say. And if anybody wants to Google it and, and look into it, I, I highly recommend it. I've enjoyed the the experience immensely. I concur with that emotion. I, I, I do endorse the KDP as well. Jim, uh, let, let me know when you're, when the next book comes out. I want you on my show again. It's an honor and a privilege to have you on the show, okay? Well, and, and thank you for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. and uh, uh, I will absolutely keep in touch with you. You take care, Jim. You too. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for my next show where I'll be interviewing author Julian Shales. And just a reminder that my latest book, Lords of the Gridiron 2, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches, is up on Amazon. It's still on sale at 30% off and will remain on sale until after Super Bowl 57 is played next Sunday. So get it on sale while you can. Thank you and good night.